0: this case, you have four shiny victims. They're good kids, they're the salt of the earth kind, going to college, you know, just exude innocence. That's when everybody goes the extra mile to get this thing solved. And, you know, it could be their daughter that was murdered. This is the ultimate good versus evil case.
1: John Moriarty says the Idaho murder investigation of four slain students is an excellent example of modern investigative techniques using DNA, cell phone data, and ubiquitous video surveillance cameras. Moriarty knows so because he used all of them in hunting Texas fugitives wanted for murder and other violent crimes. 28-year-old Brian Koberger, a PhD criminology student, made a brief court appearance on January 5th of 2023 with cuts on his face. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs. In covering criminal investigations, I look for the facts in law enforcement arrest warrants and search warrant affidavits. John Moriarty, the former inspector general of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, wrote countless numbers of such affidavits during his career. You may recall that the transplanted Irish cop from New York City is featured in my podcast series about serial killer Kenneth McDuff, and in our telly award-winning television documentary on Fox Nation streaming titled, Freed to Kill. We're going to break down the arrest warrant affidavit and what led to the arrest of Brian a PhD criminology student and teaching assistant at Washington State University's Pullman Campus. 10 miles from the scene of the murders. I am placing a link to the affidavit in the show notes if you want to follow along. Based on our review of the arrest warrant affidavit, we're going to talk about a possible motive for the murders. John, when I read the arrest warrant for Brian Koberger in the Idaho murder case, it really is kind of a blueprint of the the best of modern policing using video footage in the area, cell phone data, and DNA. Walk me through for our audience what an affidavit is, because I know you, you have a lot of time in your career where you wrote these affidavits, but explain why they're necessary and why they are done.
0: During the course of the investigation, in this case and other cases that I've been involved in there, there's hundreds of interviews done. It's like a fire hose of information coming in, and you've got to sort through that if you're managing the case especially and determine what's important and what's not important. And and an affidavit is a statement of facts to support a warrant or a search warrant you know reading that affidavit uh, again they only put in what's relevant to to the case to reach the end of a statement of facts that would allow a judge to issue either an arrest warrant or a search warrant for a location
1: and in this case the arrest warrant in the Idaho case is it's a statement by a corporal but he it points out he's assisted by members of the Idaho State Police and agents of the FBI. So it tells me there actually were a lot of contributors to the affidavit.
0: Absolutely.
1: So anybody would look at it and go, went, well, there's this young, young corporal. Well, they're off base. There's a lot of people putting in yeah. information. Yeah. Now, what it does indicate is that he and his partner arrived uh, on the scene the responding officers, and then they walk him through the scene. And so he gives a narrative about what he is seeing.
0: Yeah, he, if I recall, the other officer that's there was an initial responding officer. I think he came later, so they have him, uh, and uh, it sounds to me like he may be in an investigative Yes type uh, position. So they're walking them through the scene like they would on a on a, an arriving detective will always talk to the first in uniform on the scene to um, to go through what he saw. And, and, you know, and the fact that he mentions in the affidavit, too, that the only thing different was that the dog was removed from one of the room's. Everything else remained the same,
1: and he actually reviewed the body camera footage by the responding officer.
0: uh, That's correct. Dog
1: being removed. Now, in this narrative, he talks about arriving at the residence, and the responding officer walks him upstairs to the second floor. And he notes as he's headed to a bedroom, he sees the body of Miss Kernodle on the floor of a bathroom, and then as he goes on. He goes into the bedroom, and her boyfriend is deceased with wounds. Uh, the The wounds to Miss Kernodal are described as caused by an edged weapon. But interestingly, the wounds to the boyfriend, who is, is, is killed in, in the other room, were sharp penetration wounds that I'm— So I'm I'm wondering, what do you think the difference is there? He says sharp force injuries, stabbing versus what, cutting?
0: Cutting, yeah. Uh, And that's what was visible at the time. Mm -hmm. And I know they make reference also to some of the wounds post-autopsy. They make a reference in the affidavit. But um, I'm sure that that's just what was visible to him. At the time mm-hmm. you know they they would not move those bodies or do anything to alter right uh, the scene no.
1: well, he's then led to the third floor to a bedroom where two women, two of the roommates, Miss Goncalves and Mogan, are visible in bed with uh stab wounds, but he notes he uh, that he noticed a tan leather sheath, knife sheath laying on the bed next to Ms. Mogan's right side, still on the bed, that he could see from the door. And he said it was processed and had a K-Bar, U.S. Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor on the outside of it. And that they located, the, he says, the lab lo- located a single source of male DNA left on the button snap of the knife sheath. So right. now here's where the DNA comes into play. So key key part of an investigation today uh, in, that in the past you never even thought of. When you think back when you first started your career as a detective,
0: yeah, back then you know you maybe if you were lucky you got a, a a similar blood type you know at the scene and that was it. But yeah, DNA is is obviously revolutionized. You know, police work. The technology has has absolutely changed the way law enforcement handles crime scenes. And I mean, they were always careful around crime scenes. But I I give you, for instance, when a case that we had of a guy who who was out on parole and he was a suspect of uh, abducting and sexually assaulting a, a male child, one of the first cases that I was involved in was when the child was recovered, safe by the way, he, his face was swabbed and the DNA uh, from the suspect was found on his face and the second thing you're talking about, well, when we talk about electronics and tracking and phones and that kind of thing, but in this case this guy was also on A uh, electronic monitor uh, that was live-time, transmitting 24-7. It showed him the days before. uh, The day before, he he had the uh, electronic monitor removed, and the day of the abduction of the child Mm -hmm. was the first day he didn't have it on. And we went back and looked at that monitor, and he had been going by that school where that child was abducted from for like six or seven days in a row.
1: Well, in this case, we'll get into this in a minute, the cell phone tracking data really kind of does the same thing that electronic monitor did. Exactly. let me go to the next step here in the uh, affidavit. He points out that uh, numerous interviews were conducted by Moscow Police Department officers, Idaho State Police Detectives and FBI agents, and I, I bet you it's in the hundreds, I would guess, in a case Absolutely. like this. But they yeah. he points out that two of the interviews were of two female roommates that were on the first floor. They only identify them by the initials, their first and last name initials. but uh, And they placed the roommates' bedrooms, you know, respective to where the upstairs rooms where the victims were found were. Um, right. And they, he, he then lays out the timeline from the investigation of when uh, Chapin, uh, the male, and his girlfriend, Kerr Noodle, were last seen. They were at a fraternity house on campus. And then also when Gonclaves and Mogan, the two women found on the third floor, uh, when they were last seen at a corner bar club as well, and so they're they're bringing down the the times, they're narrowing down the times, and conclude that from the statements of those two women, that all of those occupants, the deceased, were all home by 2 a.m. asleep, or at least in their rooms by 4 a.m. But point out that Kernoodle received a DoorDash order at approximately 4 a.m. and you no, know, she says she she went to sleep, but she was awokened around that time by ConCal's playing with her dog. We talked about the dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, right. which is on the third floor. And then she said a short time later she thought Conclave said something to the effect, there's someone here. And uh yeah, they went they looked at the deceased victim's cell phone and they found that she was likely awake then, and she was on TikTok at around 4.12 a.m. So they're they're laying down very specific times. Why is this important to the investigation?
0: Well, because all of the circumstantial evidence uh, that they're developing places one person, only one person, at that house at that time. Given the facts on, you know, uh, uh, you know, I know the phones were shut off a couple mm-hmm. of hours, which in itself is a good piece of evidence. Uh, it's common that, you know, people do not, when they commit a crime, do not want to be yeah. uh, detected by the location of their right. phone. Right. And, uh, you know, and a lot of times when we used to track phones, I mean, it, it it's accuracy is, is pretty amazing. And, you a lot of it has to do, of course, with the, uh, the phone company itself that you're working with and the technicians that work there. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, we, we had some very expensive technology that was vehicle mounted that, you know, we could uh-huh. we could phones and and uh, but it's just gets increasingly better all the time. But th- the what I'm trying to get at is that even though the phone wasn't there, all of these other circumstantial facts, the videos, the, the DNA, which is not circumstantial, but right. Physical evidence. But, you know, all of that, you know, there's nothing to eliminate him as a suspect either. It's all every piece of evidence that that's detailed in that affidavit puts him at that
1: scene. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you there here in a moment. And as we go on with this, this roommate, D, uh, identified as DM, so she's heard um, this comment about somebody being in the house. She said she opened the door, not, didn't see anything. Then she said she opened the door a second time when she heard what she, what she thought was crying coming from Kernel's room. And she said she heard a male voice say something to the effect, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Around that same time, this really goes to the intensity of the investigation, they note a security camera at the neighbor's place over against the wall of where the victim's bedroom rooms are picks up distorted audio of what sounds like uh, voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud and a dog can be barking numerous times get breath, and it's that's at 4 17 a.m right so you know we know she got she got food at 4 a.m we know she's on tiktok at four twelve. so it appears this stuff is unfolding between 4 and 4 17 in the morning and then she says after she heard that crying She opened the door to her room. This is for a third time, and she saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose, walking towards her. She described him as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. Right. And the male walked past her as she stood, quote, in a frozen shock phase, and then the male walked out and she says she locked herself in her room and this led the investigators to believe that was the killer leaving right so the the investigators you know when they've looked at the the, the two roommates records phone records and the videos they you know they think the, the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4:25 a.m. but what i i guess what I really uh, has stunned me that this roommate witnesses this, goes back at her room, says she's, you know, frozen. But, you know, later the police aren't there until 4 p.m. This is all at f- between 4 a.m. and 425 a.m. And it's later at 4 p.m. It, you know, you're just like, wow, why didn't somebody call the police? Now, I've heard that it was known that house was known as a party house. So maybe comings and goings. But, you know, she was frozen in fear. What, what do you make of that?
0: Well, if you back it up, the other murders of the other two females was done prior to this contact, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. With her. Yeah. So this guy, when he passes her in the hall, he's spending some time inside that place, and things aren't going the way I believed he had. You know, he had the scenario probably laid out in his head, whatever that scenario was, and it was mayhem. And she would have been a victim too if he hadn't already have killed four and uh, needed. He, I I think he knew he needed to get out of there, and because uh, time was running short. And and the other thing they talk about in the affidavit is there's a situation where the vehicle is that he's driving is caught on video leaving at a high rate of speed from the neighborhood so i, I think time you know he knew that the, the t- time was his downfall he also didn't know how long she was there or what she saw or did she call anybody i, I think you know, he, he he knew by that time that he needed just to get yeah. out
1: of there. Because I thought he would have killed her after doing this. But uh, exactly. it, it, it so says something was going. So he's in a hurry. He, he's got to get out of there.
0: That's right. Yeah, I, I think that's the key. And that's why she survived. I think he was more worried about getting caught than he was about anything else by that time. I mean, as a normal thinking person you just caused the death of four people or, or cut up four people pretty Mm -hmm. badly and didn't know if they were going to die or not. But I mean, it it just, I don't, I can't imagine that being something that he planned out in in that that
1: way. Well, they did a uh, video canvas of the neighborhood, which is common now. And, you know, I'm seeing all kinds of cases where, uh, Suspects are being caught because they're captured on ring video. There's video all over the place, especially the ring. I see that all the time. So they find in that video canvas that starting at 329 a.m. and ending at 420 a.m., the suspect's car is picked up on camera. He's he's even making it's like he's uh, checking it out. Because at three twenty nine AM he's making passes by. So which when you see that that he's coming by, and then I'll go into later, he had actually been coming by months earlier. Right. It does that tell you that he had a target. There was something going on there. That that house.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I think someone in that house uh was his primary target and you know, obviously, they're not around to to ID them or or say if they've ever had any contact with them, even though even if it was briefly at one of these bars, and 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 you you don't know, you know, they they refer to things, uh, you know, with people that go off as a uh, precipitating stressor that something happened to to, mm-hmm. to make them twist off, and you know. Was he blown off by one of the females when he contacted him? Uh, when, when he may have contacted him at a bar. I mean, you don't know. But it's just highly unusual for, for this type of thing to happen. I know there's a case where a criminal justice student or a, a, tried to get away with the perfect crime. I don't know if that's what you're dealing with here either. But, I mean, in today's day and age, the chance of you— Walking away from a, a quadruple homicide uh, is is almost non-existent.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And the one thing I know from over the years talking with really experienced homicide detectives, you know, some of the same people I do, is that usually the victim knows the perpetrator or they've crossed paths with them somewhere, right? And didn't know exactly, it. yeah. That's typical. It's just not a random – it's very rare that it's random, except in the case of you know serial killers that are doing blitz attacks, what have you. Well, yeah. one other thing that really impressed me about the forensic abilities and investigations like this is that they took this video footage of the suspect vehicle to a forensic examiners at the FBI – You're a graduate of the FBI Academy. And what's so interesting here, they have an expert on identifying cars by unique characteristics. And uh, that expert's got a database that gives visual clues. And, you know, in the beginning, he thought it was a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. But once he dug in more, he narrowed it to 2011 to 2016. So then they started Reviewing information on people that own that kind of car, white Hyundai 2011 to 2016. So right. talk for a minute about what you saw at the FBI Academy and their forensics ability they've got there. I know they've well, got all those facilities there.
0: Yeah. They're, without a doubt, the, the FBI crime lab is the world's best, I would say, at their forensic capabilities. they They're well equipped. They're well trained. They have some of the finest experts in the world, uh, whether it be fiber, uh, DNA. But in this case, it was the Idaho State Police that did the DNA, their crime lab. Right. But, you know, a lot of the labs are trained uh, through uh, via the FBI also, you know, whether it be tire marks, footprints. I mean, it just, you think of all of the things forensically that can be discovered at a crime scene. The FBI have a way to uh, match that, whether it be the type of tires on the car. It's, a, you know, it, it, we can go into a lot of different things. But uh, I know that they found uh, also a footprint at the scene. Yes. And yep. the after David, it talks about it being from a uh, van's type brand, and uh, I'm sure I'd be shocked if the FBI or the Idaho State Crime Lab didn't have a, a hand in that identification.
1: Yeah, they even note it's got a, a diamond-shaped texture on it. Right. And right. then you know that you were eventually run a search warrant. You're going to be looking for that. You're going to be looking for shoes like that.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. But, uh, you know, what's interesting here is that the sweep of cameras, I mean, for miles, they're getting cameras. You know, they even get camera footage from a, uh, a grocery store and they find him, Coburger Brian Koberger, there prior to the, you know, shortly before the murders. And they build an yeah. entire route of where he's going and stuff. But the, the other thing that sort of that impressed me, that two days after the murder, they put out a bulletin, and they asked area law enforcement to be on the lookout for a white Hyundai Elantra in the area. And uh, a Washington State University police officer, you know, he, he was really alert, and that's where Brian Kohlberger was going to college in uh, criminology to work on his Ph.D., he look. He looked through their database at the university, and he finds a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate. Has the number, shows who it's registered to, Coburger. And the camera footage had picked up that that car. They get his
0: DL, uh, driver's license photo, also.
1: Yeah, and then yeah, then they're really. I, I noted that in here. Then they're really rolling with that, you know, because they've got the description, and they note that. Lo and behold. He's got big, bushy eyebrows in his driver's license photo.
0: Yeah. he matches the description of the eye that the eyewitness at the at the house gives him. Yeah, physical characteristics. But now backing up, Robert, on the uh, on the store when he's at the grocery store. My guess on that is is that they. They got a hold of his either debit or credit card and were able to see every place he did purchases. And they went back and and pulled video from all of those places if it was relevant. Mm -hmm. I think that that was relevant that day because it was one o'clock, I believe, around that afternoon, the day of the homicides, the day either before the homicide, I guess. But uh, I, I think, you know. They, they did such a thorough job. I mean, just from we're looking at this affidavit, but the only thing that's in there is what's relevant to the crime. I mean, there's a there's a lot of other things that yes. they have in their pocket that that they're not talking about quite yet.
1: Well, once they tie his car to that university, you know, now they're getting um, all kinds of records about his. Criminology, what he's doing, his degrees.
0: The video from the university too was key, in him leaving, you know, the residence and prior to the murders, and then returning after the murders. And that was that was all in the affidavits as well.
1: Right. I was going to get onto that, but that that is something. It's it's the old, you know, it's hard to believe the adage that the killer always returns to the scene of the crime. Right. So, right. you know, he goes back. But well, we, we have this extensive tracking of him by cell phones, his, his cell phone. And, and we also know that he his cell phone goes off around the time the murders are taking place. Tell us how you used cell phones, because I know you did this in tracking fugitives that had broken out of prison and had been right. doing it a long time. Without disclosing, and because I know there's some technology and stuff is secretive, walk us through how they do this, how this happens, the triangulation and all that takes place.
0: Yeah, the first thing obviously is the court order, getting the court order to allow uh, allow this tracking to be done because you're you are intercepting signals. Once you get the court order, you could be sitting in your office. Uh, In coordination with the phone company, if you're live, you can go live on these uh, these with these warrants also. But you know, historical information is what they're talking about in the affidavit, Mm -hmm. which gives you the cell towers, what time that phone was at that tower, when it switched off of the tower onto another one. I mean, you can track that person all across the country. I mean, I, I had a similar incident where a guy escaped from a maximum security prison, and we it was very frustrating because we were live tracking him, and we were reporting to the different state police agencies. You know, he's westbound on, I'm sorry, eastbound on a, a major interstate, and we didn't, I mean, he traveled all across the country. We were watching him for like 18 hours and it was driving us crazy because nobody could get him. He was in, we knew what the vehicle he was in. I, we knew the direction of travel. We knew our location, but again, there's, there's traffic issues. I understand that. But finally we got him in North Carolina uh, when he checked into a hotel and the signal stopped and the phone was still on. And you know, the technology is good, but you got to have the ground support also on the thing. But, they just talk about historical information on that phone, and he had that phone since June, according mm-hmm. to the affidavit. And they went back and got everything I think forward from that point on, and that's how they knew we had gone by that residence twelve times because those cell towers register that phone every time it switches and it, it comes. It, it how it works is it uh, that that phone that you're carrying goes to the closest location, the closest cell tower with service uh, in, in, in order to get that uh, the best signal for you as the consumer. And uh, when you travel past that, uh, it switches off uh, to the next uh, to the next tower.
1: The cell phone data in the arrest warrant affidavit for Brian Koberger indicates he was near the house where the four students lived a dozen times before they were murdered on November 13th of 2022.
0: I think he was really fixated on somebody in that house. I yeah. mean, I, I don't have any doubt that, I mean, it, it was just, was it, you know, what was he thinking? Can I commit the perfect crime or did he have a, uh, a vendetta or an issue, yeah. uh, with, uh, someone in that house.
1: You know, and they also mentioned that when they start digging into all these cell phone records, they're getting assistance from uh, an FBI agent. That is a certified member of the cellular analysis survey team cast. Right. Did, you, did you ever work with them or come across them? Uh,
0: most of the time we worked with the, uh, ESU, the Electronic Surveillance Unit, with the U.S. Marshals Service, they had their western region or uh, headquarters out of Houston. And, and we, you know, we had people assigned down there and, uh, you know, they did a, a tremendous amount of cell phone tracking with fugitives. Whereas with crimes, it's got to be a pretty high level crime to track a cell live. and But you know, with major fugitives, it's done quite often, almost every day. I I can tell you some incredible stories with the marshal service, uh, you know, about tracking phones and sitting in a location, watching a phone, say, live across the country in another city. I mean, it's uh, the marshals have it going on, too, with the cell yeah. phones.
1: Well, you know, they do indicate in the cellular phone data that at 1246 p.m. now, the Murders are going to occur around starting around 4 a.m., but it places him at an Albertson's grocery store, and then they get the surveillance footage in the grocery store and it show him it shows him getting out of the Elantra. He walks through the store, purchase. They say he purchases unknown items at the checkout and leaves at 1:04. I, I, I'm thinking that. If he used a credit card or debit or something, they know what he purchased. They're just not saying oh, yeah, it here.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. They know now anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> they, they, oh, yeah. You know, things are fast and furious when it's going on. You know, the intense scrutiny that they were under, you know, also it wears everybody down to, you know, that's involved. Because you're going 24-7. If you're involved in that type of a case, you may go home and get a couple hours sleep and then get back up and get on it because it's constantly on your mind. You know, it's just you, you can't think of anything else.
1: Yeah, and it's reading between the lines here and studying this. It's clear to me they're tracking his cell phone all the way back to his home in Pennsylvania.
0: It could be. Yeah, yeah. that's a very yeah. likely possibility.
1: And and then there were the traffic stops. One for following too closely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I never hear of traffic stops for that. So I'm guessing yeah. that there were troopers that were given an alert, and they're just trying to keep up with him and see what's going on.
0: Yeah, just confirm who's in the car. Yeah, and yeah. That kind of thing. And
1: uh, then there's it's a it's kind of buried here between the lines, but there is a reference of surveillance that's going on and I, so it tells me that you know they put in the affidavit that on December 27th they recovered trash from the family residence but that reference earlier they there must have been sitting on this place watching a lot of stuff yeah
0: yeah absolutely they had surveillance teams Probably for several days there, just watching his movements. And I know they. There's also a, I, don't know, I can't remember if it's in the affidavit or, or if it's just a report that's out there about recovering evidence from neighbors' trash cans.
1: Yes. Yeah. That he
0: put, or that that actually tied him to the crime.
1: And there were reports that he had on rubber gloves, cleaning the car and taking stuff from the car, putting it in the neighbor's trash cans, all right. of which indicates they were on top of it. They were watching it. Uh, oh, yeah. Just gathering up the evidence he was trying, thought he was getting rid of.
0: You know, the other thing is, you know, everybody said, well, there was there's surveillance from the house and everybody's thinking there's guys in cars, you know, driving around or parked nearby or chances are they, they didn't take the chance of going to a neighbor since the parents lived there for so long and all of that. My guess is they set up uh, some type of electronic surveillance in the neighborhood to watch the house. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that, that, uh, equipment that that's available nowadays to, you know, you can look out your door up and down the street and it'd be empty and they're still watching
1: you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That so. technology, do you find it's with state police agencies or is it more of you, you get it help from the FBI?
0: You know, the, the, the state definitely has it. And uh, just like the cell phone tracking stuff, the state has it, the feds have it, different agencies. Uh, there's uh, numerous uh, different applications, uh, DEA has stuff also and it's just it's the way business is done nowadays
1: so there has been the speculation was he working on a phd in criminology to learn how to commit the perfect crime if that was the case he gets an f but what do you think because criminology is more from what i know of more of sort of theory not into forensics and details but correct me yeah. if I'm wrong
0: well it's I mean, I, I, I've got a master's degree in criminal justice and, and I, you know, I attended uh, a university with a lot of people that weren't in the business of law enforcement. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of theory there is. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, development of programs talking about saving people and you know, helping rehabilitate people. And there is discussion, depending on the class, of course, uh, there is discussion about forensics and its application. But it's, again, it's a lot of it is theory. And, yeah, it's good to read about it in a book, you know, but when you're out there and you're practically applying uh, that knowledge it's it's completely different. From the timeline on this thing, it's obviously that the, the, the females, the two females in the, in the single bed were killed first. I mean that's I don't think there's any doubt about that, which would lead me to believe that one of them may have been the, you know if he had a t- and he had an issue, uh, it, it would have been one of them. Uh, but, you know, the ability to to successfully pull that off in theory uh, with with a K-bar knife, I just can't imagine. You know, I understand maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, the motive. We don't know Yes. what else he went there with, as they say in the business. You know, did he show up with a rape kit besides the knife that mm-hmm. he have? things to tie him up? Did he, you know, to tie up whoever did he think he was just going to confront or or one female and there were two in the bed. I mean, there's a lot of unknown questions that the police, I think uh, that are investigating have the answers to.
1: Well, speaking of the police, you know, they played their cards close to the vest during this. They got some criticism for it. Talk about the pressure you, they would have been under in other agencies like them in high-profile cases because you've been there. I remember the uh, you led the manhunt across the country for the Texas Seven, the seven inmates who broke out of prison, were doing robberies, and then murdered uh, a police officer on Christmas Eve in Irving.
0: That's right. Yeah, um, it's it, uh, the case takes on a life of its own, and you're just getting. Deluged with tips and information, and the media. You know, I, I'll never forget. They one of the things that that happened uh, during the seven was we were getting uh, we were getting media calls from New York that they had evacuated this block because they had a sighting, and and you know these, uh, you know we uh, we were sure that these guys didn't go to New York City just because. And we knew that they were going to stay together by the profile we had on them. You get all of that. You've got all the media calling. You've got, as soon as you walk out the door of whatever building you're in, where, you know, we had a headquarters operation set up in Huntsville and had massive electronic surveillance going on on phones all over the country. On a, We took up a whole floor, second floor I think it was the largest uh, uh, electronic surveillance operation in the history of Texas at the time. And, you know, they, the media wants up to the minute information where well, you got to have your holdbacks. And and these guys, I thought, did an outstanding job of no leaks, uh, you know, no information put out that didn't need to go out. There may have been some flubs on, you know, not being a continuing threat to the to the community when they first said that it definitely, to me, I agree with them. It appeared that they, it was a targeted, uh, crime, just the pressure on those guys. is just incredible. I, you just can't, I don't think, unless you live through it, you don't understand it. And I think they did an outstanding job. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot more coming out uh, at the trial that, Shows the, their professionalism, both, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, the state police, the local police and uh, and the uh, FBI. I think it was a well-coordinated effort uh, that resulted in a a, a great arrest. And, and, you know, I'm sure by now, you know, they had his father's DNA from that trash pickup that you mentioned. Yes. And I'm sure they've gotten a warrant uh, that's probably sealed also for his DNA to complete the match on that K bar knife uh, snap.
1: Yes, yes. Well, based on your experience, I know years undercover, then years uh, supervisory and then head of the in inspector general in Texas in the criminal justice system, and uh, going through the FBI Academy. Sum up for me what kind of job, based on what we read in this affidavit, you think all the investigators have done?
0: You know, when you when you talk to homicide guys and you're around people that are that are murderers, and they talk about shiny victims, okay? And in this case, you have four shiny victims. They're good kids. They're the salt of the earth kind, going to college. You know, just exude innocence. That's when everybody goes the extra mile to get this thing solved and you know it could be their daughter that was murdered this is the ultimate good versus evil case and that's you know that's where everybody works together everybody you know it's not you're not out there to to get the gold star pinned to your chest, you're out there to contribute to the team, and and that's what I think I uh, I, I, I saw from the distance that it was a a very very positive concerted effort, uh, which which came to a incredibly great conclusion. Now the prosecutors have got to pick up the ball and run with it.
1: Indeed, prosecutors have asked anyone with any information about Koberger to come forward. Based on our experience, Moriarty and I believe that anyone who murders four people in a single act is likely killed before or committed other violent crimes as they progress to murder. We'll have more insights into the Idaho murder case as the evidence comes to light. I'm Robert Riggs. Of true crime reporter true crime reporter is written by me robert riggs it is produced and researched by siler burr you can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com and while you're there please sign up to join our true crime community it's free and there's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind the scenes information and you can email your suggestions to fan at com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.